Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Tom Higley. Tom is one of the most prolific members of the Colorado tech community, having started and run nine different tech companies, most notably Service Metrics, which was acquired in 1999 for $280 million. Since then, Tom's had his hands in a number of interesting projects, most recently as founder and CEO of X Genesis and 101010, two organizations, one for-profit, one non, that are focused on turning wicked problems into opportunities and working with top entrepreneurs to do so. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Really my pleasure. Thank you, Adam. So you probably remember this, but you're one of the very first people I met in the tech ecosystem when I when I moved here. And you're one of the people that really has been here since the beginning, actually through the first dot-com cycle <laughs> in Colorado. Would love to hear a little bit about your story, how you came to Colorado and Colorado Tech. So you know some of this story, uh, surely, and I remember very well our first meeting. Uh, you actually made the trek, I believe, from Denver to Boulder, and we had dinner together. And part of the premise for getting together, again, which I remember vividly, was, yeah, Tom, I think maybe that one guy in the ecosystem that's uh, that's been to the same place as I have. You graduated from the University of Michigan. You went to Harvard Law School, and here you are, uh, an entrepreneur. And I want to be happen? like you. And I want to be like you one day. <laughs> you were you were wrong about that. You, <laughs> I, I think eventually you realized that really wasn't the right goal, which is good. Uh, it's good, but that's how we met. And to go back to the earlier part of your question. I have a pretty checkered past. I was a musician first uh, right after high school and and then found my way to the University of Michigan, but only after 10 years had had elapsed. So my finding my way to Colorado was was through going to law school and coming out here to practice law in, in 1989. So long, long time ago. But when I was at the University of Michigan, and maybe something like this happened to you too, I bought an Apple Macintosh in 1984, the year they came out, and it was a crystal ball. I just knew I could see the future. And and I also knew that lots of other people had Macs and they weren't seeing the future. So uh, uh, it, it was very, very special to me. And then when I landed here in Colorado, I couldn't stay away from tech. So I represented lots of clients, lots of people who were in the tech space, and that was wonderful. And someone asked me to create this community computer network, whatever that was. And, and that was my first uh, step into tech from practicing law. It was so great. And when I saw Mosaic in 1993, 1994, I realized I was I was seeing the Mac all over again as a crystal ball, that that what the Mac had done uh, to, to let everyone connect to computers, essentially, what that Xerox PARC interface had done. Um, now, Andreessen and his pals at NCSA had done so that everyone could connect to a network that otherwise would have been really, really difficult for them to, to access. So uh, I, I just couldn't stay out of tech. I just had to do it. We'd love to know, how'd you end up starting your own company in service metrics and, and a little bit of the story there? I know we've got a lot we can, can go through, but I think it's worth, worth touching on that. Yeah. So the first thing was Fortinet and then another called Net Delivery. So I had a couple of, of, of things under my belt before service metrics. I learned a lot, made lots of mistakes. I, I mean, just a powerful sets of mistakes. 
And I'll, I'll fast forward to service metrics. So service metrics happened uh, in part because <laughs> it's a funny story, uh, this piece of it. Uh, Raj Bhargava, a, a dear friend, Raj uh, had been snapped up by Brad Feld to do uh, his next thing. And uh, Raj was uh, going to be VP of this or that, probably VP of ops. And uh, he had this idea that he'd uh, explored when he did NetGenesis uh, before that. And Brad needed, I think, to divorce Raj from that uh, in order to set him free to, to be VP of ops. So he said, you know, Raj, uh, you can you can find another CEO. We can find someone else to do this service metrics thing. And, and so Raj and I uh, were introduced through Brad. We met. We liked each other. I think there was a nine-page draft business plan. There was no money. <laughs> there was no team. But Raj uh, introduced me to Neil Robertson, and I ended up with these two 20-something co-founders. I, I think Raj was 23. Uh, Neil Robertson was 22. Raj was on my board. Uh, Neil was my CTO. They were both from MIT. I'm the Harvard Law guy. Brad's MIT. It was a stunning experience. I mean, just ridiculous. Uh, we raised a million dollars. We put computers and networks around the world, ran a beta. There's, a, a, there's an infinite collection of stories connected to all of this, even though it all happened in a really short period of time. So the bottom line, uh, what happened is that million dollars gave rise to another 14 and a half million in. And about oh, 14 months in, something like that, we got an offer to purchase for 79 million. But because I'd been through this before, I, I looked for additional options. And I think I managed to spin up four or five additional acquirers. And the negotiated sale of the company was for $280 million. We had extraordinary uh, legal uh, representation in, from Cooley. And uh, in the end, that $280 million, while it was locked up, quadrupled in value. So when the lock came off, the company was worth something like $1.2 billion on 15.5 in in less than 24 months. So that's incredible. That was a rocket, uh, uh, better than the rocket today to the moon that got scrubbed, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so so that was, uh, th that'll eventually tie into the notion of success that I, I think I began to develop uh, sometime after this. Uh, that was a version of success, but it's not the one that I hold near and dear today. Well, well Tom, you've done a, a ton of really interesting things since, but maybe um, kind of talk about what you're currently doing. So uh, the thing that I do now, I'm the, the CEO of two things, really, uh, 101010, which is a nonprofit, and XGenesis, which is a for-profit startup studio or venture studio. And, and for those who don't know what venture studios are, it's probably worth saying something about that. Uh, I'm on the advisory board of the Global Startup Studio Network, which is an incredible organization to support venture studios around the world. And the, the fundamental notion is that you engage um, early, early on in the process of finding the next thing that you'll create as a company. And you might do that internally and then bring in someone who could be an entrepreneur in residence, or you might uh, begin with entrepreneurs in residence to begin with to ferret out or, or discover these extraordinary uh, opportunities. And I think maybe what's unique about our spin on this and the thing that we do as a startup studio is we're particularly focused on a redefinition of success, where success lives at the intersection of ROI and impact. What I mean by that is, you know, there are lots of folks who will support entrepreneurs who want to pursue ROI specific return on investment specific uh, opportunities. We don't do that. We also don't uh, support entrepreneurs who want to explore impact-only opportunities. So everything that we do is designed in some way or another to touch both those those key elements. You can think of a two-by-two, two, ROI on one axis, 
impact on the other. We're in the upper right quadrant for ROI and impact. Awesome. Awesome. I know there's been a lot of really interesting uh, entrepreneurs have, have gone through the program and I've said great things, Tom, already. I um, wanted to ask you a little bit about the ecosystem. So obviously you've seen a lot of change here and, and we consider Denver Boulder, of course, one ecosystem. But one interesting thing I remember um, about your journey is people do ask me that haven't seen the ecosystem for a while. They think it's all Boulder, right? Because I remember 2008, 2009, Boulder was really the center. We all know Denver is really, you know, completely um, skyrocketed. And I think about mark, marking that move of when Denver really started taking off. One of those is you personally moved to Denver. So as you talk about the overall ecosystem, we'd love to hear your, your commentary on that. Oh, yeah. It, it's all because of me. <laughs> you know, it mattered a lot to me. Uh, I lived in Boulder. I lived there for 10 years. Uh, had a great experience. There were wonderful entrepreneurs in Boulder. And, and look, part of the challenge that Denver faced was the extraordinary talent and success that was in evidence in Boulder, right? And so first, you can think about Brad moving, uh, Brad and Amy moving to Boulder and doing what they did. So you had a venture firm with real powder, with real capacity to invest, and that was connected throughout the country, not just in Boulder. So one of the, the magical things about what Brad did in Boulder was that he brought all his friends and his connections and his network from the East Coast, from MIT, from Boston, and, and then he joined a venture firm that was headquartered in Silicon Valley, and he brought all of his connections from there. Um, so, so really, uh, he did Colorado and Boulder an enormous uh, service through what he did. And I, lots of props to, to him for that. And then, um, as if that weren't enough, he supported David Cohn, David Brown, and, the create, and, and Jared Polis, our, our governor, uh, in the process of, of creating Techstars. So at the very beginning, that combination of things uh, created a tent pole that made it hard to see Denver. And my take on things at the time was, you know, that's really wonderful and it's really great. But unless Denver comes into its own, Colorado won't benefit in the way that it might. So I really wanted and, and talked a lot about this, I think, back then. And, and you're right. This has come to fruition. And, uh, you know, if I played any part in that, it was a tiny part. Uh, I mean, there are so many people who did wonderful things uh, from Eric Matizic, Tammy Dore, Ben Data, you know, and what Denver Startup Week became to the host of ventures that have been created here that have been wildly successful. And if I, if I mention one or two of them, I'll leave others out. So I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Tom, it sounds like you have a great... Uh, overview both historically of how the ecosystems evolved and understanding what's going on now as well too. Um, is there a, a company right now that you're really excited about that's being built here? <laughs> there are a bunch of them, actually. There, there really are. I'll take this opportunity to mention um, a, a very new company, and it's so early that it's I'm excited about it, but you you can't look at it through Series A and Series B eyes. So the, the, I live in a different part of the process than most and intentionally. So there's a company called Digital Gaia that's just uh, just gotten off the ground that's particularly focused on uh, what needs to happen to help dollars that are focused on climate change issues and carbon help those dollars find targets that are actually meaningful and delivering impact. So think almost as a certification of uh, proof uh, that impact is being delivered, proof of impact certificates. Um, doing that in a way that ties together things at the uh, base level, the ground level, uh, being able to see what's actually happening there to make sure that those dollars aren't wasted. So greenwashing in the ESG uh, in environment, social governance space, uh, 
greenwashing is pervasive. It's just horrible. Uh, so massive amounts of dollars flowing to the wrong things and often to really harmful things. Digital Gaia, uh, its founder, uh, Ned Harvey, is from Rocky Mountain Institute. Co-founder uh, Raf Kaufman is from Google. Uh, the combination of that crew and what they're doing is one of many things I could cite right now that I'm I'm really excited about. And uh, again, there, there are going to be others that are disappointed I didn't mention them in context, and I should have. <laughs> Well, we only have a 20-minute podcast, so I hope everyone <laughs> will understand. We'll have to do a separate podcast to cover each of those, you know, for Indeed. you. Indeed. So, so, Tom, what a shift to, you know, why we're here today is to talk about the biggest lesson that you've learned. What is the lesson? How did you learn it? And how do you apply that to your life or your work today? So, I love the question, though. You have to know that this is a little bit like picking your favorite child. <laughs> Never really a great thing to do. Um, here's, here's what I'd say. Uh, I used to think, uh, truly did in the very beginning of my life as an entrepreneur, I used to think that, that success was really all about seeing a little further into the future than anyone else, getting there before anyone else did, and building that thing that other, others hadn't quite seen or picked up on. That was my um, ideal, my notion. And it, it was reinforced uh, when I met a, a mentor of mine, uh, someone who became mentor and advisor to me in the mid-90s, Regis McKenna. He had been Steve Jobs' mentor and advisor, and he was just a, a truly incredible guy. Um, he introduced me to Kleiner Partners, to former Apple CEOs, talked to Intel's chairman about me and said, you guys need to meet with and connect with Tom and blah, blah, blah. So, so. He had shared with me that I was too lawyer-like in my my thinking about things. I was I was too uh, keen to to get agreements about everything and button everything up. And he says, here in the Bay Area, we we just we tend to find value by getting there ahead of everyone else, running faster, and and just being in the vanguard about those things. I have a different view of success now. So. From my perspective, uh, and I'll, I'll say the notion of success and, and what I'm after in a couple of different ways, but, but they all point to stories, uh, things that I've learned over time that matter to me. They may not matter to everyone. So first, now I tend to think of success as, as pursuing and doing that thing that uh, if I don't do it, probably won't happen or may not happen. So that's a very, very different thing than running uh, out there to get ahead of everyone else. It's a, what, what, what thing matters in the world that I think isn't going to happen unless I do it. So that's thing one. Thing two is, is success understood from the perspective of who has to participate to make it happen. And I, I started to develop this uh, probably three or four ventures in and realized that my ideal notion of success from a startup perspective is that everyone who was involved. And I mean uh, uh, co-founders, team members, uh, sources of capital, uh, partners, uh, customers, uh, everyone involved looks at what happened over the life of the venture and at the end of it says, you know, I'm glad I did that and I'd do that again in a heartbeat, right? So, so that's, that's a success optimized from my perspective as opposed to the sort of winner-take-all or zero-sum game kind of success. So I care about that a lot. And then you heard me say this earlier, and I'll, I'll bring it back to that. From my perspective, um, ROI and impact uh, as a measure of success is it, just waiting to happen. And I talk about this a lot. I talk about wicked problems um, as those things that have 
uh, meaningful opportunity connected with them that but, but, but really haven't been getting the attention of entrepreneurs and capital in the way that they could or should. So from my perspective, at least, and, and fortunately, for, from a lot of people's perspective now, um, there's, there's a sense in which entrepreneurs and capital are a lever that can move the world. And if that's true, if entrepreneurs and capital can move the world, why the hell would you put that capital to work uh, to create a new dog walking app? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, and I, I'm I'm being a bit facetious, but there there really are immense amounts of dollars wasted and 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 the lives of entrepreneurs that might be deployed or, or focused on things that really matter, uh, and I want to see more of that, and I think that's possible. So this is this is that big thing for for me, sort of redefining what success is, uh, not just for me but for others. Um, Helping more entrepreneurs and more investors appreciate and understand that success can mean so very much more and recognizing that this is not a trivial challenge. So wicked problems are a different order of magnitude uh, in terms of difficulty. Simple problems, you make a cup of coffee, uh, complicated problems, uh, build a, a commercial jet, uh, complex problems, wicked problems. Uh, those are the kinds of problems that get you to the heart of the things that feel uh, to all of us like they're just wrong and broken in the world in which we live. And they relate to climate and water. They relate to health and wellness. They relate to learning and work. Um, so if I can help um, more and more entrepreneurs and more and more investors find a path to supporting the things that will make a difference in those contexts, uh, I am a happy guy. Uh, I, I'll die happy. That'll be good. Yep. So, Tom, it's really interesting. What I heard you say is that you focus on on trying to do things, and you may succeed or not, right? That you feel no one else is is actually going after. So, you can have a real impact if you do succeed. And you define sort of the journey and succeeding along the way differently than just winning. You know, sort of at all costs, right? Um, and I think it's a really interesting lesson to hear. What are some specific things as you've internalized that, that you do differently in terms of, is it specific types of companies you're drawn to? Is it specific types of people you work with, or maybe a combination of the above, but, but how does that impact your life on a daily basis thinking like this? So uh, I'll go back to the beginning of what you said, Chris. Um, uh, yes, failure, lots of failure. <laughs> there, there will be lots of failure and, and you really need to get comfortable comfortable with that in this context. Um, that's where learning happens and, and that's critically important here. But, but uh, I'll, I'll answer the question that you asked in this way. This is, this is a really specific and really different thing uh, that uh, influences not only how we think about things and talk about them, but, but about what we do. So I, I talk to investor or I talk to entrepreneurs and I say, uh, look, uh, you're planning to create a company in the next 12 months. That, and that's what we focus on, entrepreneurs who plan to start a new venture in the next 12 months. So I say, um, listen, uh, I'm going to ask you to think about yourself as an investor. Um, and that's what you are. You're going to invest the next chapter of your life in this venture you're going to create. Uh, unfortunately, uh, unlike most uh, successful financial investors, you have no deal flow to speak of. <laughs> so... Yeah, out of the gate, your your collection of options are more limited than maybe they ought to be for for the best choice. Um, but beyond that, 
you also don't have a, an active and effective and well-used due diligence process. So successful financial investors have a due diligence process, and that lets them identify that value and, and also identify risks they're not willing to take. You don't have that. You, you, you have something like that, but it's not well-established. So you're disadvantaged. On top of all of that, uh, when, when you're done and you actually uh, do invest the next chapter of your life in the thing that you do, you will not be diversified. Uh, all your eggs will be in a basket. So, so, so think about that. And what I say to people is, look, X-Genesis, and really, I think other startup studios too, X-Genesis is, in effect, uh, the missing entrepreneur's due diligence process. It's a way for you to begin to think about what you're going to do next. And there's a core piece to this that, that, that's been really important for us. We emphasize something called founder opportunity fit. It's not product market fit. You, you, you don't, product market fit happens after, I, I, by the way, I, I talk about all this as a bow tie. The not in the bow ties, your articles of incorporation filed with the Delaware Secretary of State or something like that. The stuff on the right side of the not in the bow tie, that's growth and scale. You're growing your team, your product, uh, your access to capital, your customers, your revenue, all of that. Left side of the bow tie, most people have no clue there is a left side of the bow tie. This is that. So the missing entrepreneur's due diligence process. And what gets you to the realization that you should file your articles of incorporation or really commit? Well, it, it's founder opportunity fit. It, product market fit is what you do after the knot in the bow tie. Uh, it's an investment decision for both the entrepreneur and investors. Well, founder opportunity fit is an investment decision too, but it's principally about the investment decision that you as an entrepreneur will make. So if you find founder opportunity fit, that justifies the next steps that you're going to take and all that growth and scale stuff that happens on the right side of the boat. But if you don't have that, um, don't do it. Just don't. <laughs> so uh, that's my uh, take on what's particularly differentiated about how we explore what we do. And, and it begins at the very start of things with uh, self-discovery. Who are you? What do you really care about? What foundation are you building on? And from that, we hope to find the kind of drive, perseverance, a uh, uh, kind of fierceness in an entrepreneur that will take them all the way through uh, uh, the kind of success that we're talking about. So ROI and impact both. Hey, Tom, I want to go back to the first part of what you said, where separate from impact, you talked about really uh, it, uh, making sure that I understood correctly, kind of success being defined, not just as monetary success for the company, financial success uh, or growth, but also kind of making sure other stakeholders would kind of give things a thumbs up along the way, whether it be employees customers, uh, you know, there's the community you're dealing with. How do you help early or first-time entrepreneurs internalize that when they haven't had the same level of financial success yet that maybe you've had or others have had as, as multiple-time entrepreneurs? And they know that, you know, the media, the rest of the tech world is really just going to glamorize the fact that their company's financially successful. Great question. Really difficult, right? Uh, really difficult because the the milieu, the context in which we all operate, tends very much to focus on uh, call it the neoclassical uh, view of, of of economics and and what success means. So uh, profit is what matters, and uh, uh, pretty much nothing else. Uh, maybe um, one way to combat this is a Maslow's hierarchy uh, uh, sort of notion of the company. So. Uh, uh, Chip Conley wrote about this uh, and wrote about it well. You you can think as a first time entrepreneur of the notion that the company you're creating has to has to care about survival. So that piece does matter. 
And that survival piece has to scale up to and through some kind of profitability to get you where you need to go. And you think, just think about the ultimate aim of this thing. What is analogous to self-actualization or whatever that thing is you want to describe at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Um, that thing isn't just profit. It's about more than that. And, and by the way, um, the notion of impact is, uh, it, it can be uh, so broad that, that I want to be careful about this. I think it's, the, 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 here I'm going to get in trouble uh, because I'm going to talk about Google for a moment, right? And, and I'll say that when Google's founders created the company, they found that they had an engine for uh, creating value. I mean, they first generated extraordinary use and traffic, provided value to people uh, from a, a search engine perspective, but it became so vastly much more than that. And a lot of what Google has done has created significant impact. Some of it uh, really, really good. And some of it, uh, unfortunately, really challenging, really problematic. I mean, I mean that that collection of things that is the ad-supported model of the world that we live in, uh, you, you can trace that back to Google's extraordinary success. And, and look, there will always be unintended consequences as you pursue ROI and impact. I mean, it just always will be. Um, so we can't know the consequences of everything that we do when we're dealing with complexity. We can't. Um, but I do think... Um, I do think it's important to recognize that if you're going to aim for both ROI and impact, that the ROI piece is important, right? I think ROI can fuel impact in an incredibly powerful way. And, and that's a, a big, big deal. I, t I talked to uh, uh, Christine Lai the other day. Uh, she said, you know, Tom, uh, our notion of ROI is, is, is not just return on investment, it's ripple of impact. And she said, the nice thing about that is that that means you get ROI squared, which is a pretty nice way to think about it. So uh, credit her for that as a notion. And, and I think about it that way. I think about the notion that the impact that we're talking about has the benefit of being powered or fueled by uh, that ROI. That's awesome. I, I do like that construct a lot. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Great, great lesson. Um, how can our listeners get in touch with you or follow what's going on with Genesis? So there's a website. Uh, uh, it's uh, at the moment xgenesis.io. It will. Uh, we also own .com, and it will change, and it'll be updated sometime in September. So there's that. There's also a Discord server, and uh, that's the xgenesis Discord server. It's a really small thing. I haven't tried. It's an experiment for us, but uh, I, I really would love to invite many people to this. There's a collection of projects that we're exploring um, connected to the Discord server that might be interesting for folks. And uh, ultimately, people can reach out to me uh, at tom at xgenesis.io. So uh, really happy to connect and talk to people on LinkedIn, too, at Tom Higley. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, you guys are great. I really love what Range has done. Um, uh, delighted to see you doing what you're doing. And uh, uh, thank you for the extraordinary podcast uh, series that you've done. I, I can't tell you how, I mean, these are all people that I... <laughs> I know and love and have done such extraordinary things in the community. It, it, and it's great to have you calling attention to them. Thank you. Thank you.